welcome to My Favorite Mystic, a podcast about the weird and wonderful world of mysticism. I'm AJ Langley, and today I'm joined by Samantha Slaybaugh. She's the PhD candidate in liturgical studies at Notre Dame University, focusing on medieval mysticism and liturgy. Samantha, thank you for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. So today you're here to speak about Dusseline de Dean. Yes. But before we talk about her, let's talk about you. Tell me a little bit about how you got interested in mysticism as a field of study. Yes, I can. The long or the short version? Both. Always both. Okay, so the long version starts in my undergraduate when I became interested in the doctrine of the resurrection as a Christian belief that was not very emphasized to me as a Christian, as a practicing Christian, that we believed that people would rise from the dead. I had this belief of when you die, you go to heaven, and that's the end. That's all there is. and it's this sort of disembodied, angelic experience before God. And then when I was studying theology as an undergraduate and reading the Bible a lot more than I had, you realize that the Bible talks a lot about the resurrection of the dead, that when Jesus comes back to judge the living and the dead, that includes raising the dead and recreating the world. And so this really captivated my attention. And I started really thinking a lot about the relationship between the body and the spirit through the nexus of the resurrection. How is it that we're going to be embodied creatures forever? Then I went and got my master's of divinity at Princeton Theological Seminary, and we are required to take uh, certain church history courses. There was an offering in mysticism in the Christian tradition to cover the early and medieval period of church history. And so I thought that sounded more interesting than a general survey course. So the short answer is I accidentally ended up in a class on Christian mystics. And I think most people who read the mystics just get very interested in them. Absolutely. Maybe I'm biased, uh, but I did. (laughs) I mean, same. You know, they're so interesting and it's a very different And, you know, it's just like so much more engaging than studying systematic theology or like pure doctrine. And so I started asking myself, how do these mystics that are like really spiritual, they're writing a lot about these very spiritual experiences. How does that relate to the body? Because I had already been fascinated by the resurrection and this Christian belief in like a real embodied afterlife. And so I started getting focused on mystics and the body. And that led me to the Middle Ages, where we have a lot of focus on embodiment and gender. And through this, I started reading more medieval mystics, especially medieval women, and noticing how much of the texts are shaped by the liturgy and by the sacraments and by the Eucharist, especially as a sort of spiritual ideal of female spirituality, as a sort of like example of orthodoxy, but as a very interesting nexus of like, the spiritual and the physical. And so, yeah, that's my long answer for how I got into it. And why I ended up in liturgical studies is because I think this is a really interesting way to get at the mystics, Um, not just the spiritual experience of union with God, but what their body is doing while they're like raptured spiritually. What what is their community making of this like leftover vestige? that is the body, right? Because a lot of these mystical experiences happen in community, in a liturgical setting, in a public setting. And so my interest is, how are these people dealing with this weird raptured body in their liturgical spaces? 
You know, how, how are they praying with this body present? How are they interpreting it? What does it do for them? You know, that's really interesting. Just quickly, for those who are unfamiliar with the terms, could you explain what liturgy and liturgical studies, what do those terms mean? So for a Christian, the easiest way to describe it is worship, the study of worship. And that's true for other religious people. For non-religious people, um, the easiest way to think about it is ritual. What are the rituals involved with people communicating with and to the divine? Perfect. That's fantastic. I can't help but note that the idea of looking into what happens in situations where these mystics have these out-of-body experiences and how that affects their communities is absolutely perfect for the mystic we are speaking about today. So can you tell me, how did you find Dusseline? Oh, you know, I found Dusseline because I needed a dissertation topic. That's as good a reason as any. And I was searching frantically for like, how am I going to focus my attention and my research. I'm interested in a lot of different mystics. And I was looking for French Beguine manuscripts on Gallica online, and her her life is digitized, the manuscript. And I thought, oh, that's really interesting. And I sort of poked around and there was not that much English scholarship on her. So I decided, especially after reading her life, that this is a perfect text for a liturgical scholar because her life is so focused on the liturgy, like is the constant background of of the text. So let's talk about her then. What do we know about Dusseline, her life, her community? What can you tell us? So Dusseline of Dean was born in 1215 in the south of France. Uh, her brother was Hugh of Dean who was a famous Franciscan preacher of the time. He was associated with Joachim of Fiore and the reception of Joachim into the Franciscan tradition. And she died in 1274, so really like the core of the 13th century in the south of France. Her natural path would have been to join a Franciscan order, and that was Hugh's plan for her, was to join the Porclairs in Genoa. While he was away, Dusseline's parents had died earlier, and so he was sort of her guardian here. And he was in Paris, and Dusseline was caring for the sick, as was her normal practice, according to her life. And she was walking home with some of the women who were with her, and they encountered two women and a small child who were dressed in a very different way than they had seen before, but were clearly religious. And she asked them what order they were from, because she was really trying to find the best order for herself. And they said, we're from the order that's pleasing to God. And then they disappeared. And she has this experience, this vision, and knows from then on that she's going to take on that habit which included a, a black veil that symbolized the mourning of the Virgin Mary for Christ after the Passion, and take up this way of life, which is pleasing to God, which was continuing basically to serve in here, where she was living at the time, and to care for the poor and the sick. And so she convinced her brother that basically tells him like, hey, this is what I saw, what I think I'm supposed to do. He agrees. And during one of his sermons in here, she vows to him her virginity. And like, I think it's 200 some women follow her example and either vow their virginity or their chastity in the hands of Hugh. And they begin the Ladies of Rubo in here, I believe in the early 1240s. 
And so they joined together in community. They're named after the river in here, the Rubo River. And they live sort of outside of town. And eventually they move closer to the Franciscans because they go to church with the Franciscans and do all of their liturgical activities at the Franciscan church. In the 1250s, she also establishes another house, a sister house in Marseille. And so that house is the one that we know continues to, I think, 1414 when it was officially dissolved. So these women that she saw that then disappeared, were they representatives of an extant begging community that she may have known about? No, great question. Her life claims that the name of Beguine had not been known in the area before this. And so Dusseline is credited um, in this text. And as far as I'm aware, this is true, that these are the first Beguines in the south of France, in Provence. So the text makes a point, I think for a variety of reasons, that she chose the name Beguine deliberately, despite the potential negative connotations it might have, and despite the safer path of joining a established order. Yeah, so they are credited. And there's the two houses in here in uh, Marseille. And then there are women who aren't part of the house, but are also Beguines that Dusseline helps and forms as well. And so you get the sense from this text that there's like a growing Beguine movement in this area. And when you mention the potential negative associations with the name Beguine, what does that mean? What could those concerns possibly have been? Right. So the text of her life we have, the best theory would place it as being written in 1297, several decades after her death, although the process probably started shortly after her death in 1274. By the turn of the 14th century, Beguines are coming under more and more suspicion as these lay women who live together and aren't under official church authority. They don't have an official rule, although... Dusseline's communities do have a rule that Hugh of Dean wrote for them. So they're they're a little different than the Beguines of Northern Europe, but also very similar in a lot of ways. But yeah, there's a lot of the contemporary literature discusses the sort of hazards of Beguine life. There's these sort of unruly women who make everything religious and everything holy as a sort of way to hide the sinful life that they're actually living and they're not accountable to anyone and they're leading people astray. And so the life seems to be on the defensive a little bit that Dusseline was okay that people slandered the name of Beguine because that was an opportunity for humility. She wanted to be counted as the lowest of all the people and that she didn't want anyone to be tempted by pride or vanity. So they really lean into this Beguine identity. So you mentioned that the text that we have is hagiographical. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah. I mean, for those familiar with medieval hagiography, it is a typical hagiographic text for the most part. It seems to be modeled on the major life of St. Francis written by Bonaventure. Because Dusseline is so closely associated with the Franciscans, um, this is not at all surprising. But you see a lot of parallels in how the chapters are organized, the themes of the chapters. Bonaventure's Life of Francis isn't necessarily chronological, neither is the life of Dusseline. So piecing together the chronology of her life takes a little bit more work because it's more thematic. 
And so you get her sort of early childhood development. She was a very pious child. Before she can say words, she's out like kneeling on the gravel, turning her face to God, like very holy. There's probably some gender dynamics going on there, not portraying women as the sinful person, but as very holy the whole time. She's really never depicted as having a conversion. Her conversion is the establishment of the order. But even that is modeled off of St. Francis. So St. Francis is really her hagiographic model explicitly in the text. He's referenced very often. She's said to read his life like with great devotion. Whenever she hears about St. Francis, she just goes into rapture. Actually, whenever she hears anything, she goes into rapture. Um, she could be eating, she could hear a bird, she could be going to mass, she could hear a sermon. She's always in rapture. So the interesting part about the text of her life is that the ninth and 10th chapters really make up the bulk of the text. And so you have all of these thematic chapters prior to this about her austerity and her, you know, love of the sick and her charity and things like this. And then you get to chapter nine, which is about prayer. And it's really all about her ecstatic experiences. And then chapter 10 is about these revelations that she experiences. Chapter 11 about her prophecies. And this sort of makes up the core of Dusseline's spirituality. If you just look at like the bulk of the text written on these topics in comparison to every other topic, you would get the sense that Dusseline never did anything except for like sit raptured or actually levitate in rapture. So this is one of the interesting things about the life is that we learn that Dusseline is known for these levitating experiences of ecstasy where people very frequently go and measure with their hands how far above the ground she is. Sometimes two of her big toes are touching. Sometimes only one of her toes are touching. Sometimes she's not supported by anything. And so, you know, people will go underneath her feet and kiss the soles of her feet in devotion. And she really becomes this object, for lack of a better word, while she's in ecstasy for people to reverence or for people to um test this she's also frequently tested with um poked or pushed or prodded and poked quite violently sometimes with like needles under her nails and uh, her fingers <laughs> at one point so yeah it's not pretty and you get the sense that she's like quite bruised and battered because when she's not being tested she's trying to avoid going into ecstasy in front of other people and so People want to see her in ecstasy. Um, she's quite the spectacle. And they will say, oh, come to communion with me. Or they'll, someone will preach a sermon and they try to see, like, initiate a rapture. And she sits there and pokes herself with needles until her hands are torn and bruised. But it never works. And she always goes into ecstasy. Then they see her hands and kiss them with devotion because they realize, oh, she's so holy. Like she didn't even want to be in rapture. Like this is, this must be a true rapture. So much of the text of the hagiography is about, as all hagiography is, proving the sanctity of Dusseline. And so a lot of work is spent saying, ah, here's this person from this place. And they measured that it was more than hand's breadth that she was levitating above the ground and they swore this testimony with, you know, that they saw it with their own eyes and they kissed her feet with their own lips. And you can tell the hagiographer is very concerned with verification and proof. She's very concerned with establishing 
not only do Selene, but do Selene's communities as these new communities that at the turn of the 14th century have not only like the baggage of being the Guines, but associations with the spiritual Franciscans who are like soon to be burned at the stake. And so they're in a sort of precarious situation. And when you read the text of her life, you can tell that the text is about Dusseline, but it's just as much about the ladies of Roubaix. And, you know, this chapter on her ecstasies is set up by Dusseline telling them, like, you have to pray. Prayer is the, like, foundation and guarantee of our community. When you stop praying, like, that's when it will fall apart. And so that's an important thing for looking at her as a mystic. We actually don't have any text from Dusseline. We don't have any indication in the life that she wrote any texts. Uh, she didn't want her community to even have books or to sing the office. She was very committed to a vow of strict poverty. And so what we know about Dusseline is this picture of her from her community as they try to understand who they are in a turbulent world. And it sounds like the community was incredibly strict. Dedication to humility, strict poverty, no books, no distractions. Is that accurate to the whole of the text? Does that seem like it's coming from Dusseline herself? Yes, um, she's incredibly strict. There is a chapter about her austerity, and it's actually a lot about her authority. So I'm, I'm interested, especially in how her life portrays female ritual authority as another angle we don't know a lot about Beguine communities, liturgically speaking. We don't have a lot of texts that survive from Beguine communities. We don't have a lot of liturgical books. And so hagiography is sort of the best way of getting at the liturgical practices. And so looking at her authority, this is backed up and supported her authority by how strict she is. She is incredibly strict. I think there's this concern that people conceive of Beguines as potentially sexually promiscuous you know they're not held accountable and we don't really know what they're doing and so the life has this i mean just goes on a tirade about how you cannot look at men you cannot talk to men you cannot talk to your own family and Dusseline was very strict about this um so strict that there was a seven-year-old girl who looked at <laughs> the workers there was some male workers at the community presumably doing some construction. And Dusseline beat her so badly that she was just like bleeding from her sides, the text says. And of course, the text says that the, the girl thanked her for this beating because it changed her life and how she understood how she should be living in the world. She's quite strict. I think this is related to where the community is as facing potential threats. It could be that Dusseline was actually this strict. But we don't actually know that. This could be a literary method of proving that the women in this community are not promiscuous because they cannot ever look at men. And this is how we're formed, right? And that our authority isn't a threat to ethical and moral living. That our existence isn't a threat to ethical and moral living. We're good people, right? We're orthodox and we're good and we're for the church. That seems to be, I think, the thrust of the text. It's a bit defensive, but it's also a bit pastoral. You can sense that there's probably some anxiety in the community about what's going to happen to them, about who they are. Why don't we just join another order? Or like, 
Is our community going to be dissolved? Are we going to be burned at the stake? None of this is explicit in the text, but when you look at the sort of historical realities um, in the early 14th century, and we think that this life was recopied in like around 1315, right around this very tumultuous time. And then we know later in the 1320s that the communities were investigated and declared orthodox, ultimately. When you take all of that into account, you can see this text acting as a way to build up this image of orthodoxy. But also there's an almost very gentle sense that the author has towards the community. Like, if you remember these things, if you act this way, our community will be safe. Under the wings of St. Francis, we will be saved. This comes up multiple times that Dusseline tells them while she's in ecstasy. And they seem both very concerned in the mid-13th century, if we want to take these hagiographic episodes as really representing true uh, episodes in the life of Dusseline, but also as a sort of like reception of comfort from Dusseline's life to the longevity of the community, right? No offense to Dusseline, but I have to say, it's really hypocritical that she's like, none of you can talk to your families, but yet her brother is their spiritual director? Yeah, yeah. You know, there's a sense in the life that Dusseline has this very strict vision. No books, no liturgy, no buildings. She didn't want them to have their own church. But the text itself talks about them building an oratory and having a bunch of relic collections in the dormitory. and. The office plays a foundational part of Dusseline's life. Uh, she has a life of St. Francis. And so you do have to balance what Dusseline, as the subject of the life, says and what the life actually presents. And so, yes, there's this chapter about how strict she is with men. But then they also take care of the poor and the sick and house them. And they're working with men. <laughs> you know, it's not like they're only caring for women. Uh, and so they're physically caring for men frequently. And Dusseline encourages them to view these people as Christ. Don't think of them as men. And so there's, I think, uh, this balance. And even in the chapter on her sort of authority and austerity, it says that Dusseline tempered this always with like great mercy and compassion, right? And so you actually have this whole chapter about how compassionate Dusseline was. She hears about the nuns of Antioch getting captured then, she just weeps and weeps and weeps and says, oh, it's because of my great sin, because they're so much holier than I am. And and actually, there's this real sense of like, uh, what we would call solidarity, right? That the suffering of anyone is the suffering of us all. And so it's a complex spiritual picture that the life paints. You might say it's hypocrisy, but I think it serves a literary function. I think there is some like defensiveness in portraying her as very strict and, you know, following the appropriate spiritual behavior. But then there's also this like pastoral <laughs> sense in you have to hold the two intention. Like that's the, the gist of this life is that there's this like very strict Dusseline who's kind of scary and I'm not sure I would want to meet her. <laughs> And then there's this very, like, compassionate person who's so concerned with the poor and the sick. And I'm like, I want to meet that one. <laughs> I'll meet that Dusseline. I'll take the Dusseline who beats small children and leave her behind. Absolutely. It's a complex picture, I guess. And I think that's why she's so interesting. 
you gotta catch her on the right day. You do. You do. Don't don't get her in a bad mood, you know? <laughs> so with regards to these ecstasies, what role do they play in the text? It seems like she falls much more on the keep them private, keep them secret spectrum, but they're also a major feature of the work. Yeah, I'm still wrestling with this as I work on her life, but the desire for secrecy. There's no mention that she doesn't want the ecstasies. Her concern is that she doesn't want people to see her in ecstasy. Dusseline did not like being put on display. This is portrayed as a sort of humility topos, right? That she's so humble and she doesn't want to be put up. And the text says that, you know, if people would kneel before her, she would kneel down first uh, in order to stop them, right? So you have this like competition of kneeling, um, which I always think is kind of funny to envision, like someone going to pay her reverence and then her like beating them to the punch, right? But I think the purpose of her ecstasies, there's several purposes. First, it emphasizes the importance of prayer to her community. That's what the text actually sets up as the purpose of this chapter. It introduces her ecstasies by way of Dusseling saying how important prayer is to the security of the community. And so I think that's important when we're interpreting how this functioned for the readers of the text. But it is also very clear that this is an opportunity for the hagiographer to give you lots and lots of proof for the sanctity of Dusseline, to drop names of all these very powerful people, rulers in Provence, including the Count of Provence, who becomes the King of Sicily, Charles I of Anjou, and basically, yeah, talk about how famous Dusseline is, to talk about how many people measured the space between the ground and her feet when she was elevating, to talk about the way that they reverenced and kissed her feet to discuss the sort of tortures that she was put under, not as a way of encouraging torture, but as a way of saying, look, she endured a lot and she met the qualifications of what we would expect a truly raptured person to display while she is in rapture. And so again, it's it's a bit defensive and a bit offensive at the same time, trying to spread the fame of Dusseline while also guarding against any accusations that she was just feigning ecstasy. The first time I read this, I thought, oh, they must be afraid that people would think she's like possessed by a demon. But actually, the text never mentions demons or any sort of like alternative to what a true ecstasy would be, except for like a feigned love. Uh, so like maybe she was making it up that she she really didn't love God this much. Um, and the text says, oh, no, she really did. Multiple times this chapter discusses over and over how this is a true rapture. And we know this because X, Y, and Z happened, and this person saw it, and this person saw it, and they swore testimony. So when she's having these raptures, is she having visions? What kinds of things is she seeing? This text is really interesting because there's a lot of mystical texts in the Middle Ages that have a lot of imagery. Dusseline's text is very sparse on any sort of, like, revelations. We do have a chapter on her revelations, chapter 10, and there are episodes. Chapter 9 on her prayer and her ecstasies, nothing. Like, we hear nothing about what these ecstasies entailed besides, like, great love of God. Chapter 10 has, like, shorter episodes, you know, oh, she saw Mary on a hill in a field of lilies, things like that. But they're they're quite short in comparison to some of, especially the Begin mystical texts. 
that we have in comparison. So it doesn't seem like the purpose in the life is to present a sort of mystical theology. I wonder if the purpose includes authenticating her authority, like legitimizing her authority. And like as much as I hate to like say women got their authority from mystical <laughs> revelations, it seems to be that the author of this life thinks that that's true. That there is a sense of like if she was really holy and if she really had these revelations that gave her authority to start these communities and therefore these communities are safe. And it's also interesting to see how these ecstasies, from my angle, play into her liturgical and ritual authority. So you get some interesting episodes where her ecstasies interrupt liturgies and, and seem to show her as this liturgical authority, right? So on the Feast of the Assumption in August, the text explains that she receives communion early in the morning at dawn to avoid crowds because she wants to not be seen. And as usual, she remained in a state of ecstasy all day. And so it was time for Compline, and she elevated, and her feet weren't touching the ground. They were a hand's breadth above the ground. And then it talks about how the friars, the Franciscans, were saying Compline, and she left the altar where she was, and she goes from the chapel of St. John to the altar of the Mother of God, which of course is important because it's her feast day, which is in front of the choir of the Church of the Friars Minor in here. So she's in here at this point. And she bows to the Holy Virgin, who is presumably either in statue or some artistic depiction behind the altar. And the friars start singing the office for Compline. But then she begins to sing excitedly and with joy, Assumpta es Maria in Chalem, Gauda and Jelly. Mary has been taken up to heaven. The angels are rejoicing, which is a common liturgical text to have recited on this day part of the office, but it seems that this is not the part of the office that the friars were saying, because the text says that then all the friars responded together to what she had sung, abandoning the antiphony and showing the spiritual elation they were all feeling. And then she goes elevated and like processes as they continue the office, like responding to her. So I think it's very interesting because the text shows Duceline basically leading the friars, a group of religious men, in the office and almost kind of like correcting them. Like, no, let's start here. And the way that this works is that ecstasy allows this to happen. They know she's in ecstasy because she's levitating, but she pretty much just like barges in and starts singing a different part of the office. And they are just like, yeah, okay, let's do that. Why not, right? <laughs> You know, and and she like processes levitated and they follow her and they sing the office. And it's a really interesting depiction of liturgical participation while in ecstasy. So she has different kinds of ecstasies. Sometimes she's just like totally raptured and like unfeeling and you can do anything to her and she'll like not move. But other times while she's in ecstasy, she's like processing with the angels and like doing liturgy. But I mean, to be fair to the friars, if she's going to take communion first thing in the morning, spend the entire day, because Compline is at night, levitating in the church, then floating over to the Virgin Mary, bowing and completely changing things up by singing a totally applicable song, you would kind of just go with it. Right, right, exactly. Well, I, I, you get the sense that they're well familiar with her because most of her 
experiences with ecstasy are in their church. Uh, she goes there to receive communion and then just sits all day, sometimes floating, sometimes her face is red, you know, different signs. But yeah, she's pretty much in ecstasy there most of the days. I really want some anecdotes from this work of the friars having to like float her down the aisle, just push her out of the way like a lovely, holy balloon because she just went into rapture in a really inconvenient place. Scoot you over there. Yeah, um, so one of the contemporary texts that we have that points to Dusseline is Salambini of Adam and his Chronica, and he talks about Dusseline briefly and how the Franciscans would, like, put her arm up and it would just, like, stay all day or, like, push her over there. They don't quite talk about her as, like, a balloon in the way, but um, <laughs> there is this sense that, like, yeah, you can just sort of, like, move her and she moves. Because she's so enraptured that she's completely oblivious to what's going on. There's also a funny episode on Good Friday when she's with her community. And so Dusseline, like St. Francis, has set up for herself. She's the head of the communities, but she has selected a prioress to be over her because obedience is, you know, important. And her prioress, Philippa of Porcelet, tells her she needs to eat because she's been, like, Good Friday basically, like, kills her. I mean, and I don't say that flippantly. Like, that's how the text describes it. Like, they are worried she's going to die because she is so emotionally distraught. She's very clearly present in ecstasy at the crucifixion. So empathetic with the sorrows of the Virgin that her veins look like they're all going to burst from pain. And they're very concerned about her. And... It's late at night and she's been in this way all day and she hasn't eaten anything. And they set up the table and her prioress tells her, you need to eat. And she says something like, yes, it's time to eat. You know, there's the lamb that's been sacrificed for us. And all of a sudden she's, of course, reminded of Jesus, the lamb who was slain and is in ecstasy again. Then they like poke and prod her and poke and prod her. They like try to get her out of ecstasy and she sort of like comes around and they're like, no, you have to eat. And she's like, oh, okay. And like, every time she tries to eat, she just like goes into ecstasy again. And you get this sense that it's just like this constant battle between her and her community where they're like pushing her and poking her and like trying to get her to eat something so that she doesn't like fall over and die. Because you get the sense in the text that these experiences make her very weak and ill. And this day in particular is very bad because she's just like with Christ crucified. And it's just, I know it's a very serious day, Good Friday and Christ Crucified, but the episode itself makes me laugh because I can just see her basically like rejecting the authority of her prioress almost and saying like, actually, I don't need to eat. Like what I need to do is be in ecstasy because essentially every time they try to make her eat, she just, it's like, yeah, no, like see ya. And then goes into ecstasy again. I think it's hilarious. I mean, it sounds a lot like trying to get a toddler to eat. And I mean, so much for the importance of obedience. Yeah, well, you know, obedience to who, right? She, I mean, like the text portrays it as, of course, like she can't help it. But you wonder if there's a real episode behind the text in which she's like, no, obedience to Christ and ecstasy is more important than obedience to my prioress who's trying to get me to eat, right? Maybe not, right? This is all guesswork. All we have is the text. Uh, we can't get behind it, really. But um, that thought makes me a little happy. I mean, I'm 100% on the side of the community in this case. Eating is important and should be prioritized whenever possible. 
But in that respect, this doesn't seem like something that is really about imitation by a community, which we sometimes have with mystical texts, that they're more about advice for the mystic's own brothers or sisters. But this doesn't seem like something that's really geared towards imitation. That's something I'm wrestling with. This sort of ecstatic liturgical participation. Is this a sort of literary approval of a type of liturgical participation that is common in the community? Do they have a lot of people going into ecstasy? Do they have a lot of people just hanging out in front of like the Franciscan altar all day? I don't know, but I'm trying to analyze the text as a literary text to see if there's any hints that like this is actually approving a type of behavior that the ladies of Rubo should imitate, or is this extraordinary case of their founder who is a saint and you all are ordinary and don't need to do this, you know, or shouldn't expect it. But there's really a sense of the ladies are supposed to be praying, like a lot. And the chapter on prayer is all about ecstasy. And so you wonder, Dusseline tells them to pray. And then the way that she prays is described as a practice and a habit. And it always results in ecstasy. And so if the ladies practice prayer enough, will they all be ecstatic mystics, you know? And is that an appropriate way of liturgical participation for the ladies of Rubo? That's kind of like a question that I'm wrestling with. I don't have an answer yet. And I don't think I'll have an answer, of course, because we don't have the textual evidence that I would need to indicate this one way or another. But yeah, it's really interesting thinking about the community of such a strange woman, right? Like, what would it be like to be in the community, like reading this text? What do you take from it? Like, what are you supposed to imitate? What are you know, are you scared of this lady? (laughs) Right? Like, there seems to be like some disagreement. At the end of the hagiography, they're talking about after her death, the community is working on her life, and there's some disagreement about whether she should be called a saint or not. And then this is answered, of course, by a divine revelation where Dusseline appears to the sister who doubted and is very clearly a saint. And so this settles the issue. But you, you do get a sense that maybe not everyone felt the same about Dusseline as the author does. <laughs> Well, now that we are coming to the end of the podcast, let's talk about how you feel about Dusseline. What is it about her that makes her your favorite mystic? What do you love about her or her work? What keeps you interested? I wouldn't say I love Dusseline, given the sort of interesting depiction of her in the life, and because I don't know who she was outside of this text. And it's an interesting question because she doesn't even have text herself. But I love this text. And I love wrestling with it because it has so many interesting features. I'm very interested in Franciscan spirituality in the 13th century, the reception of St. Francis. And this is a perfect text that hasn't been worked on a lot to explore a reception of Franciscan identity by non-Franciscans, but by Beguines, who are pretty much like as Franciscan as you would expect Beguines to be. So that's super interesting to me. But I love this text in particular because it shows for me something that I've had a hunch about is that mystical bodies and raptured bodies make an impact on their community. And this text seems more focused with her body than with her experiences. It is more focused on what her body does and how it impacts the local community, not just the ladies of Rubo, not just the Franciscans, but all the laity in Provence 
who like come and like climb up the gates to see her and like are very obsessed with her if you take the life at face value. And I'm really interested in that because there's a sense in which when you study mysticism, you can go like different directions. And I think like as a religious person, myself who's studying someone who shares my own religion, there's a sense in which you want to know like, were these experiences real? Did you really experience union with God? Did she really levitate? Did she really unflinchingly feel these pokes and prods and boiling lead? I mean, the life would say, yes, it's very real, right? But that's, of course, what the life is supposed to say. But as a scholar of the life, what's interesting is that regardless of like the factuality of these episodes, the literary impact of them lives on in the community. And there's this real sense that like enraptured bodies form a community, regardless of however you want to describe whatever experience that body is having. That to me is really interesting because I don't have mystical experiences where I'm totally out of body, but there are people in my tradition that claim these sort of speaking in tongues or having prophecies. And I think the tendency is to be like, you are weird. But this text gives me a different way to wrestle with that from the perspective of ritual, from the perspective of community formation, which are two areas that I'm really interested in as just like a person. Like, how do we form communities to have these sort of notions of what is acceptable in ritual? What is like the appropriate response to the divine? And so this text is a great way of looking at that because it's not interested in improving like a theological experience of mysticism as much as it is interested in proving that this body that you see here that levitates and cannot feel anything is a saint. And we are the community that this saint founded. And this body has formed us as a liturgical tradition. And I think that's really interesting. (laughs) It absolutely is. And so is this conversation. Samantha, thank you so much for joining me and telling me all about Dusseline and her community and her hagiography. Yes, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. It was my pleasure. And thank you all for listening. You can follow us on Twitter at MyFaveMystic. But most importantly, join me next time when I speak to Gemma Simmons about Mary Ward. 